as the careful reader comes to 1 Samuel chapter 26, uh, she might feel deja vu. Um, do you know that word, uh, deja vu? It's a, it's a French word. It comes into English. Uh, it's, it's what's called, a, uh, a linguist call a loan word. When you grab a word from another language and just bring it into our language, uh, they call that a, a loan word. Makes sense. You're borrowing the word from another language. One of my favorite loan words is hallelujah. You like that word? Say hallelujah. I mean, I like that word. Uh, it's interesting if you know that word, a uh, slight digression here at the very beginning of the sermon, hallelujah. Uh, it's two words in Hebrew put together into one word, meaning praise, Yah. Yah is short for Yahweh. I sometimes have encountered people who were concerned of God's name being abbreviated, like that is an improper thing to do. Every time we say hallelujah, we're using a biblical phrase that, that shortens God's name, Yahweh. Yah, praise Yah, praise Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. So I'm already like way off course, but we're, we're here because of deja vu. And deja vu is related to today's passage, this loan word from French. And this word means, um, haven't I been here before? <laughs> haven't I experienced this? Haven't I read this exact passage maybe before? If you have read the Bible a lot, you've probably had that experience many times, not just in 1 Samuel, but in a variety of passages. And so for the reader who comes to chapter 26, they might very well be remembering chapter 24. In both chapter 24 and in chapter 26, David is in a situation where, uh, as a fugitive, he's the prey, but in both chapter 24 and in chapter 26, the prey has an opportunity to take out the hunter, that is Saul, the king who is hunting David. These extraordinary situations where David has an opportunity to take out this murdering king who has gone astray and has the Spirit of the Lord withdrawing from him. You might remember back in chapter 24 uh, where this occurred, or you might not remember where this occurred. Uh, it occurred in the honey bucket. And if you're not familiar with this honey bucket, I was on a mountain bike ride. Did I, have I mentioned to you I go on mountain bike rides? Church, have I mentioned that? Say yes. Say yes. So I was on a mountain bike ride in Marin on Monday and Tuesday, um, or Sunday and Monday, rather. Sunday, Monday, we were in Marin. And they have these little facilities there. They have different names on them than here called the honey bucket. I didn't see any bears, but I saw honey buckets as I was riding, and this caught my attention. And of course, it relates to the sermon because that's where Saul wanted to be in the honey bucket. They didn't have those in 1000 BC, so he's in a cave in chapter 24. Do you remember this? And David and his men are deep back in that cave. And Saul is going in there, and David has an opportunity to take his life, and he doesn't do that. And he has the same opportunity in today's passage. And so there is a reason and a purpose for this deja vu. Uh, why is this here again? 
In other words, why did the Holy Spirit inspire the writer of 1 Samuel to put this very similar story here again? Could have left one of them out. And the reason is to emphasize the importance of godly restraint or self-control. This is one of the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. And it is, I want to suggest to you, the reason that we have a very similar occurrence repeated in history and then also recorded in Scripture under the inspiration of the Spirit for you and for me. In different ways, every one of us here is in need of help for self-control or for godly restraint. And David exemplifies this both in 1 Samuel 24 and here in 1 Samuel 26. So with that, let's turn our attention to the text, 1 Samuel 26. Hopefully you have your Bibles open, your devices silenced, but if you're using your device, do that. However, have the Word of God in front of you, whether it's on a device or in your Bible. Let's begin 1 Samuel 26 in verse 1. It says, The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which faces Jeshimon? Now, if you didn't get that in my tone or the way I read this, the Ziphites, this isn't something new of them, they are the, the tattletalers of the 1000 BC ancient Israel. They were the ones wanting to get on the, ten, the teacher, the principal, the, the king's good side, and they, you know, is not David hiding on the hill? We, we came and told you, king, the one with the robe, one with the power, one with the authority, and this isn't new. They've done this before, and they're doing it again. I don't know if we have any um, tattletalers here, maybe in your childhood or in, in your family. Um, we have one in our family. I got her permission to share with you. It's my wife. When she was a child, she was uh, number seven of eight children, so there's a lot of opportunity for all kinds of things to happen. And one of her older sisters, uh, not her older sister who's here today, but another one of her older sisters would, um, would my wife would, would tease her. And then her older sister uh, might respond in, in some way. We won't describe that way, but she would respond in some way. And then my wife would strategically um, get that older sister in trouble. And my wife would get off. And so... I'm not, I haven't done the Ancestry.com, but I think my wife might be a descendant of the Ziphites. So that's how this all relates. She didn't give me permission to say that, so we can talk later. But, but I'm in the doghouse. So all that to say, you're going to remember the Ziphites now. Who are the Ziphites? They're the tattletalers of 1000 BC. So that's verse 1. Let's come back to the text here. Uh, verse, verse 2. So that they go and tell... Remember, David's a fugitive. He's been a fugitive. Saul's trying to kill him. So the Ziphites go and tell Saul about his location. So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel. Deja vu here again. This guy is paranoid. He doesn't need 3,000 elite soldiers to take David out. But this is the kind of person we're dealing with. 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakaliah, facing Jeshimon. But David stayed in the desert. 
When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Verse 5, then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had laid down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. One commentator writes this, he says, uh, referring to Saul, he is well protected. The head of the army is lying next to him, and the entire army surrounds him. We've just read that entire army is not just 3,000 random soldiers, but these are like 3,000 elite soldiers, 3,000 chosen men surrounding him. An intruder would have almost an impossible time trying to get to Saul, who is at the center, the epicenter of this massive military force. So that's the setting we have here. Let's come back to the text, verse 6. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite, so this is not Ahimelech the priest, for those of you careful readers going, yeah, I know Ahimelech. So that Ahimelech is dead, uh, along with the rest of the priests at Nob except for one. So this is a different Ahimelech, the Hittite, and then this other, this other brother, Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother. So David, David says to them, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? <laughs> uh, I mean, this, this is like uh, mission impossible, but really mission impossible. I mean, this is who would like to go with me into the center of these elite 3,000 soldiers who are after me, who would like to sign up for this duty? And so look what happens. Uh, we, we do have a volunteer. There's always somebody, right, who will volunteer um, for these things. So uh, who's going to go with me? I'll go with you, said Abishai. This is David's nephew. We're going to see him again in First and Second Samuel. He becomes um, the elite leader of, of uh, David's bodyguard later as he ascends to the throne. And this dude is a warrior, and, and there's always one ready to go. He's, he's ready to go. Verse 7, so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. So this is, this is a, a really unusual situation to, to, for them to arrive there and for everyone to be lying around him. Verse 8, Abishai said to David, Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. This is one of those deja vu moments in this chapter. We've been here before where David's men were saying that to him in the, in the honey bucket in chapter 24. So now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. If you have an older uh, NIV like I do, it should say the spear. So this is not the spear of of uh, Abishai. This is Saul's spear that he's saying, I will grab this and I won't strike him twice. He's full of bravado. He's full of, you know, th this is the hunter. If you're, if you're deer hunting with Abishai, he only needs one arrow. I, I, I'm, I, I don't need a second shot. I don't need, this, this will be a clean and swift kill. I'm ready. Look at what God has done. I am ready to just take him out with his own spear that's sticking in the ground. He, he, is, he is one who is, 
is eager to destroy. Uh, you've seen this bumper sticker, maybe, uh, when it absolutely positively has to be destroyed overnight, the Marines. So this guy, Abishai, was a candidate for this sort of frontline warfare, and here he is with this wicked king who's trying to kill David, the anointed one, and he's, and he's ready to deliver this. So, so what happens? Let's come back to our text here. Um, so uh, he, he's, ready, he's ready to do this. Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed? Who can do this and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die, he's just going to die of old age, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So he, he grabs this spear, David's got a good collection of, of spears. He's got uh, Goliath in, in hiding. I don't think it's on him. He's now got Saul's, and he's now got his, his, his Yeti water bottle. He's, he's got his, his jug. He's, he's taken it. Uh, this guy did not get to uh, take him out, Abishai, and he has seen incredibly godly restraint on David's part. So the reader at this point is thinking, deja vu, we've seen this before. And why, why does David do this? Why does he not take out this king who has slaughtered the priests, who has done all kinds of damage? And it is, in large part, because of David's internalization of the word of God. It is in his heart, it is in his mind. He's not doing a Bible study there in the middle of this battlefield or what would be a battlefield if they were awake. He has in his heart and mind Exodus 22 and perhaps other verses as well. You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You don't even speak a curse or in an evil way against the king of Israel. And Saul is in the office. He has the robe. He is the king. And this is linked with how we don't speak about God. And this is not how we speak about the king or the ruler of Israel. And obviously, if we don't speak about him this way, we don't kill him. We don't take him out. God is the one who will bring vengeance. So this is deja vu. This is here again for the careful reader to reflect on our own weaknesses, on our own temptations, which unless you are a military commander and in arm-to-arm -arm combat, which I don't think is any of us here, ours is going to be very different, our temptations. In other words, David's temptation or Abishai's temptation is to take out the king in violation of God's word. You and I, whether it's with our words or with our eyes, often we want to violate God's word when we are operating in the flesh and we need godly restraint. We need self-control desperately. And David has it. He has it in 24. He has it in 26. 
And the careful reader is to see this not as some liberal scholars do, and oh, well, the editor confused two stories, and he just made two things up, and you know, this is clearly not historical. No, so some liberal scholars take it that way. No, th th these events happened, and they were recorded for us to reflect on the godly restraint and self-control of David here. Now, we're not going to jump forward, but David doesn't maintain this fidelity to the Word of God in other areas of his life, which we will get to later. But for you and I, um, Tim and Kathy Keller, uh, they write this about how Jesus used the Word of God. Jesus answered every one of Satan's assaults with passages from Deuteronomy. As he was carrying the cross, he cited the prophet Hosea. And as he was dying in agony, he quoted both Psalm 22.1 and Psalm 31.5. Jesus was so saturated, like David in this situation in 24 and 26, so saturated in the word of God that it spontaneously came to his mind, enabling him to interpret and face every challenge. David, of course, doesn't interpret and face every challenge because he is not the son of God. But in 24 and 26... He is yielded to the Spirit. He is mindful of the Word of God. And he will not take vengeance on the Lord's King. At this point, he is going to wait for God uh, to do that. You and I have different circumstances and different situations, but we have the same battle, same sort of spiritual battle going on inside of us with the flesh and with self-control. We read about this battle that we all have, David included, in James chapter 1. It says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. David, isn't, David is tempted, especially back in 24, but he isn't carried away and he isn't enticed by his own, his own lust for power and his own lust to take the throne now. David was patient and waited on the Lord. Back to James 1. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin always brings forth death when it's accomplished. It is usually spiritual death and not physical death, but sometimes it is physical death, but it is always spiritual or emotional death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren or my brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be deceived. This comes from inside of us, these desires to, to, to lay into someone with, with words, of, of anger and hatred. It is, it is the flesh. And, and this is what we are to see here in 26, what we are to oppose. And what we desperately need is this fruit of the Spirit, godly restraint or self-control. One of my, um, if I can say, one of my dead uh, friends is John Newton, dead friends from a long time ago. He wrote letters encouraging people pastoral counsel through letters. In this letter to Miss Jane Flower, he writes this. He says to her, if your heart is like mine, it must confess that when it turns aside from God, it is seldom through ignorance of the proper means or motives which should have kept us near him, but rather from an evil principle within the flesh 
the evil one, this, this tendency that is in each of us, that's what prevails against our better judgment. That's what we see happening in Saul. Saul professes faith in, in, in Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the creator and sustainer of the universe. David professes faith in Yahweh, the, the, the covenant God of Israel, the sustainer and creator of the universe. But we see one who is characterized by the word of God in his heart, in his mind, and it being brought to mind in this situation where, where, where he could go against what the scripture says, but he knows what the scripture says, so he is a model for Abishai, the young Marine, the, the great soldier, the one who is eager to go into any battle and take any risk. God's will for you and for me is to have godly restraint in our lives. As I say many weeks, what we really want to have happen is for the word of God to read our hearts. So this sermon is not primarily for you to learn who the Ziphites are or to learn the details of 1 Samuel 26, although that's helpful. It's primarily for your heart and life to change so that you have self-control and godly restraint. So David needed to know this passage in Exodus 22 about the seriousness of not even speaking against the anointed king who is in office in ancient Israel. So David knows that word. And it's there in his heart. It's in his mind. He doesn't need to have his Bible with him there. His Torah scroll there with him. So you should and I should be thinking right now, so what, what word do I need what specific verses do I need from God's word here to keep near me for those areas and times in life where I lose it, where I am not characterized by godly restraint, where I'm not characterized by godly control? This is what it means for the Bible to read us and not us simply to read the Bible. So this is deja vu, divinely inspired a repetition of a very similar situation, but not identical situation. So Abishai, let's come back to our text now. We've made it through um, verse uh, 12, right? Or no, how far have we made it here? How far did I read? Did I read verse 12? I meant to go through verse 12. Let's go back to verse 12. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and he left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. And this is a key sentence. I don't think I read this. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. So there's the answer as to how did, these, how did David and Abishai get to the center of 3,000 chosen soldiers. Chosen, easy for me to say. Uh, 3,000 elite soldiers. They got there only because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Now the text doesn't tell us if David knew this or not. I don't know, you know, somebody can help me out afterward. Did, did David know, uh, or did he just, I'm going to just walk in to the midst of 3,000 elite soldiers who want to kill me? I, I, I don't see in the text that David knew, but anyway, someone can help me out after the service and uh, let me know the answer to that. So we're back to verse 13. So let's, let's move on here. Verse 13. So David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. So I, I have that underlined in my Bible. Those of you who are in uh, AP literature, 
this is purposeful ambiguity. This is double meaning here. There was a wide space between them. This is not just talking about geography. This is talking about geography, but it's telling us more. There is a wide space between these two, between these two professors of the covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh. There is a wide space between David and Saul. Verse 14, he called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? The, the idea here is, is these guys are, are groggy. They're waking up. God has supernaturally put them to sleep. And, and David's shouting out to him. He didn't really answer. Are you, are you going to respond? Abner replied, who are you who calls to the king? David said, you're a man, aren't you? Uh, to paraphrase uh, one of my friends who's here today, this is David saying, uh, do you have a man card? You were supposed to protect Saul, Abner, but you don't seem to have a man card. You didn't protect him. So he says, uh, you're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard the Lord, the king? Someone came to destroy your Lord, the king. Verse 16, what you have done, and you is plural there, what you and the 3,000 elite soldiers have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die. He takes seriously protecting the king. Because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear? Where is his Yeti bottle that was near his head? Verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice? David, my son? So deja vu again. Saul's used this language before. They're shouting across a massive canyon here. There is a wide space between them. Verse 17. Or we're in the middle of verse 17. David replied uh, to, to, to Saul, now speaking to him, screaming, Yes, it is, my lord the king. We notice again the surprise, respectful tone for the office of the king of Israel. Yes, it is my lord the king. He's, he's showing respect in his language towards Saul who does not deserve the respect. Verse 18. And he added, Why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? And what wrong am I guilty of? You, you, can, you can sense the heart of David like, Saul, might you actually change here? Might we have a, uh, something that our country, generally speaking, is, is very proud of, a, a peaceable transfer of power? That's what should happen here but it's not going to happen. What have I done? What wrong am I guilty of? Verse 19, now let my Lord, the king, listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. In other words, if, if, if what you're doing is actually right, let, 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 let's deal with that. But David knows that's not the situation. If, however, men have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. David is showing the utmost respect for Saul here who doesn't deserve any of it. He's giving him an out. He's saying, you know what? If your leadership have gotten you against me, let, let, let's, let's deal with them and, and, and let's move forward. Continuing on in the text, they have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance. David knows he is the anointed one. Everyone knows that he is the anointed one. Saul knows that he is the anointed one. 
So he's bringing this up now very gently and respectfully. So this is what they've done. They, they've, they've said, go serve other gods. This is de facto what is happening. If your men were actually to kill me, they're, they're sending me into another land de facto to, to, to worship other gods and not to be a part of the covenant-keeping community of Israel. Verse 20. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. So this is a, a phrase that we probably don't, most of us, I didn't get until I looked at the commentaries. What he's saying here in this last sentence is, Saul, your pursuit of me is outrageous as a person hunting for a single flea, like for a, a flea that you somehow might recognize, or hunting for a partridge or a pheasant, not hunting pheasant in general, but you're actually hunting this one particular pheasant. No one does that. That's absurd. That's what David is saying to Saul. What you are doing is absurd by hunting me. You should not be hunting me. And then he's using self-deprecating language here, humble language, in liking himself, likening himself to a flea or to a partridge in the mountains. So, what we are to see here in 13 through 20, in this wide chasm between them, is of these two people, Saul and David, who profess faith in the covenant-keeping God of Israel. One of them has godly fruit all around his life, and one of them does not. One of them speaks words of respect and genuineness and truth, and one of them we have seen lying and scamming in going from one direction to the other. So when he's using this language about David, uh, his son, and, and, and so on, the reader knows this is, this is not genuine. This is not, this is not th th these words are not connected to the reality in his heart. You and I, if we're going to let this passage read us today, we desperately need self-control, godly restraint in our lives, and God's desire is for you and me to bear fruit. Fruit of honesty, integrity, joy. To, to do what is right before the Lord. And this is what we are seeing in 13 through 20. And this is what we're seeing contrasted with David and Saul. There's not only a geographic space between them, but there is a massive spiritual chasm between David and Saul both professing faith in God, one of them a scammer, one of them whose heart is for the Lord. Let's come back to our text, verse 21. So then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. Deja vu. We've seen Saul say almost the same thing previously. David was on his face. Do you remember? Saul lets him go. But David takes off knowing that that was a temporary fleeting emotion of David's. And that's the way I read this here. I read this not as genuine, but I read verse 21 as, as, a, as, as another uh, deja vu moment where Saul... Uh, is, is disingenuine in his repentance. So the third and final heading I have, if you will, from today's passage, we, we have godly restraint, 
we have godly fruit, and then we have godly repentance. God wants all of these things in our lives. Now, as we think ahead, and many of you know 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we're going to see eventually godly repentance in David's life when that word of God is not close to him, when the flesh is operating in full bore, and, and it takes a while, but David gets to that point of, of godly repentance. But here, we see, I want to suggest, a disingenuine repentance of Saul, which would have the reader think about our own repentance and that we would be men and women who live repentantly, that we understand John the Baptist's message, that the heart at the heart of the gospel is to live repentantly every day, moment by moment, as I have evil thoughts, as I say things I, I shouldn't say, that, that I would be very quick to say, God, help me uh, to, to change, whether I express that, if it's a big deal, or whether I don't out loud if I'm with others, but that I, that I make changes constantly, that I'm eager and ready to repent. This is not what we see in Saul's life and in Saul's words in verse 21. So let's finish up the chapter here, and, and then we will pray together. Verse 22. Here is the king's spear, David answered. So Saul and David are having this conversation across this physical chasm, across this canyon. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. The word of God is close to David. Verse 24, as surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. It's interesting here in verse 22 that he returns his spear, but he, ke- he keeps the Yeti bottle. He, he, likes, he likes that. So um, if we go back to AP lit mode, there's a lot written here about... Uh, and a couple, we have a couple AP literature students here this morning. That's why I'm using that phrase. Um, he gives them the sword. And the sword uh, symbolizes death and violence in that culture. He, he, he keeps the, the, the Yeti bottle that symbolizes life and water and sustenance. He keeps that. He returns the sword. Verse 25. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed. My son David, you will do great things and surely triumph. There's a sense, you know, the way that I read verse 25, you know, what emotion is here? What what is the tone here? I think the way I read this is the tone is Saul along with everyone else, recognizes David as a man after God's own heart, recognizes David as the anointed one, recognizes David as the one who can take down Goliath, recognizes David as the one who can bring this eager, trigger-happy Marine into the center of 3,000 elite soldiers and leave with just a sword and a Yeti bottle. They recognize that God's hand is on him. Saul recognizes that, and so does everyone. But Saul is utterly led by the flesh. And so I take verse 25 as, as yes, Saul recognizes this, but he's not ready to do a, a, a transfer of power. He, he's not ready to do what's right. In fact, he still wants to take David out. Last sentence. So David went on his way, and Saul returned home. 
And this is the last encounter of David and Saul in, in Scripture. David went on his way, and Saul returned home. My paraphrase is there's not going to be a peaceable transfer of power from Saul to David. Godly restraint, godly fruit, godly repentance. This is how the, this chapter should read our hearts today. And I'm really emphasizing this first point of self-control, of godly restraint. I'm certain some of us here have trouble with self-control regarding our eyes and what we look at on screens. We need the Word of God that is relevant, if that is your battle, close to you. David had this Word of God close to him as he has the temptation to be violent, as he had the temptation to take out Nabal and his entire family, but he didn't. He didn't there because of Abigail, but the reason that he didn't just brush Abigail aside is he, he knows the Scriptures God is near him, and he's longing to repent. And so that's part of why Abigail was so effective in last week's sermon. Some of us here, we lose control, and we use our words in ways that, that tear down, that, that, that discourage. So if you are reading 1 Samuel 24 and 26, and you're allowing it to read you, you should be thinking today about what scripture do I need? And then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help and his spirit to help me so that, so that I, have, <clears throat> I have godly restraint. I have self-control. I bear the fruit of the spirit. We do this not because God's got a bunch of laws and he's afraid someone is, is, is going to have fun somewhere, and so he's got all these laws for, for, for us to keep. That is such a misunderstanding of God. He wants you to live a joyful, beautiful life. And the laws that he's given us are so that you can live a joyful, God-glorified life. And so this self-restraint or self-control is something that is so good for us, and it is God's will. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, we thank you for David's example in these chapters at least in 24 and 26 of godly restraint, of self-control. We need this in our own lives. And Lord, I couldn't possibly know all of the areas in each of the young and old people here represented, men and women, boys and girls. So I don't know what needs to be memorized, internalized, meditated on, different portions of Scripture, and then a, a, a constant prayer life where, where we're connecting the Word of God and, 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 and we're able to resist the kind of temptation that David had in taking out Saul, and not only resisting that, but, but showing the way to Abishai, David's nephew. We thank you for his example. We thank you for the word of God. And we pray that you would make us more and more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.